but let's have this conversation one day in heaven. But I think dying is going to be a bit like that. That we worry about it, we fret it, we struggle. Uh, the ones that we care about, we want it to be quicker. But I think when we actually go through it, God's going to see, say, it's not that bad. It's, it's, what I mean. it's, it, it's okay. So I, I could be completely wrong, and you can come find me in heaven and be like, Kurt, you were so full of crap. It's, you didn't understand. But I, it's my hope. It's my hope. So let's take a look at verse 17. I want to make one comment. Sure. It is it's where the Philistines are about to be run down. And right. it, it actually, this actually concludes something that began way back in the book of Judges. Um, the, the, the Judges, the Philistines were one of the main enemies of Israel. And do you know who starts the ruin of the Philistines? At a boy. Samson starts. David ends it. Now, Samson certainly wasn't a great guy uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but he did start this. And so hundreds of years have passed, and now this is coming to a conclusion. I remember our Philistines. It's an incredible story that they've had. They were part of this mass migration of humanity. Probably the first that, well, the first that we have written record of. Certainly, human history will see more of it. But this mass migration out of southern Europe, out of southern Russia, that destroyed the vast majority of Bronze Age civilizations. So the Philistines were a small part of that. Um, and certainly by the time they enter Israel, they're a bit of a broken people. But they are a huge regional threat. And David is finally going to put an end to that. So David, being the traitor, finally gets caught. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. So they realize they've been duped. David is not just going to be content with ruling Judah uh, and be their man on the scene, that he's going to try to unify the whole country. And the only reason he would unify the country is to resist them. So the Philistines are made up of five cities and kind of a confederacy structure, as you would expect of Greeks that don't unify easily or well. So there are all these little city-states. They're going to capture David. But David was told they were coming and went into the stronghold. One of the things that we're starting to understand a lot better is the breakdown of David's Jerusalem for the last 10 years. The main archaeological dig in Israel has been in the city of David, which is near this stronghold, the Milo region. So it's the area he built up, and there is incredible stuff that they're pulling out of there. So again, it's good that scripture is matching what we know in terms of archaeology. But the Philistines arrived and spread out across the valley of Rephaim. So we can, uh, we've got a map to help us here. Um, the geography of this should be familiar to us. So the Philistines, this is towards the coastal area. This is the Shephelah. 
the uh, sort of foothills, and then out here, actually, you would have the coast and then the sea. And Israel, Judah, has content itself to stay up in the mountainous areas. And as always, the transition from the coastal areas up into the mountains has been Israel's natural defense. And the way that you do it, especially if you have heavy infantry, is you march up these valleys. So there is near Jerusalem, this Rephaim Valley, and it sort of runs uh, from uh, the west down through the south of Jerusalem. It's hard to see here, but here is Jerusalem itself. So that's, that's where they're headed. These valleys, and we would call them draws, uh, they're uh, wadis in Arabic, uh, but these valleys that don't see water, until the rains come, and then they fill up very quickly. So the Philistines are going to march up uh, their heavy infantry right into Jerusalem. So David has advantage of, of geography again. He knows that if he can hold this valley, he can keep them out of the highlands. And we'll see in a minute that once the Philistines are blocked here, they try to go up around. And David will, with God's help, respond to that. But when David is successful with things, what does he first do? Yes, God. Exactly. And it sounds very simple, very Sunday school-ish. Uh, but in this case, David is probably thinking, Oof, I don't know if I want to do this. I have my, my mercenary force, 600 men. Israel has sworn loyalty to me, but there are a bunch of farmers. I haven't had much opportunity here to to get them trained, get them ready. This is going to be a tough battle, and we're going to have to fight it on our turf, which is always bad, because even when you win battles on your turf, it still destroys um, farms and people and that kind of stuff. So, David, well, um, pick him, uh, verse 19, so David asked the Lord, should I go out to fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? So he's, he's requiring the Lord. And Steve, is this becoming a new pattern for him? A new pattern? <laughs> well, is this going to be the future? Uh, no, no. Yeah. This is one of the last times. Which there will be a correlation between what happens here and then what happens later. But we've had an interesting journey with David talking to God. Here he is perhaps focused, perhaps a little nervous, but he does ask God, can, can I do this, or should I just hold up in my new capital? David replied, or the Lord replied, yes, go ahead. I will certainly give you victory. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and defeated the Philistines. That's like, okay, that, that's it. That's it. So a couple things to look at. David went to where? Now this is unusual for us. Ball, Perizim. So we'll find out in a few minutes. This means the Lord bursts forth, or the God busts out. Now, we've seen in Samuel this desire to avoid saying the name Baal. 
This is the name of the Canaanite God, and you know all that stuff. So why why is it done here? Usually, what what do they translate Baal into in Samuel? Do you remember? Yeah, <laughs> Bosheth. <laughs> so they, they didn't call it Bosheth heresy. <laughs> so a couple things here. This is probably an original place name that was named before David and the Israelites got there. And so they're keeping that. But it really kind of underscores for us how difficult some of this was in people's thinking. At its core, do you remember what ball means? If we translate that, it simply means Lord. Now, the crazy thing is, <coughs> excuse me, the Canaanites and the Israelites speak the same language. So they're both Semitic people. Let that rattle in your brain. So, what does a Hebrew call God? I mean, they know his name is Acher, is Yahweh, but they call him Adonai, which is Lord. What's a Canaanite call God? Baal, which is Lord. So do you serve the Lord? Yeah, I serve the Lord. Do you serve the Lord? Yeah. But we're not talking about the same Lord, are we? It's almost like what we do today in English. Do you love God? Sure. Do you love God? Yeah. What God are we talking about? Oh, the Lord. Well, who's that? And it gets very, very confusing quickly if you're not. You know, we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in God the Father. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And you've got to have all three. There's lots of groups out there that say, well, I believe in God. But it's not the same God. I mean, I'm stepping on some toes here, but Allah is not God. Not by any stretch of nation that we know of God. But people will make that assumption, like Allah is God. No, he's not. It's, it's like one of these things here. Lord is not Lord. So David probably is trying to change the perception of what Baal Perazim had meant. Um, there is some evidence that there was a spring in this area originally, and Canaanites get really hot and bothered with water coming out of the ground. Israelites do too, but um, because they think it's it's the fertility gods bringing forth life, and so they think that's what Baal Perazim really was originally. That Baal was bringing forth water, but David's trying to change that now and say, no, it's really the real Lord that brought forth victory. But David, to his credit, is in the best place that I think we've seen him in a long time. He is a leader, he is a strong leader, and he's a leader that relies on the Lord. And when you can do this, amazing things happen. David is very clear, the Lord has done it. David explained, he burst forth through my enemies like a raging flood. So David named the place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord bursts forth. The Philistines had abandoned their idols there, so David and his troops confiscated them. We wish they had destroyed them, but we we generally understand ancient cultures, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean, view war 
as a battle between gods. So the people battled and the gods battled. And the Philistines had picked up the worship of Canaanite gods. Um, we have several burials of Philistines, uh, some stuff in Gath, where we've excavated, and, and they're, they're imitating the Canaanites. So the battle between the two lords here, um, God was, was really, really victorious. And so the Philistines are thinking, well, dang it, here we moved to this new land, we picked up these new gods, and they did nothing for us. So screw them. <laughs> They're on their own. <laughs> we'll get some new gods when we get home. Um, it's, a, it's a sign of a great defeat. Now this reverses, of course, what happened when Israel got defeated by the Philistines earlier. What did the Philistines take from Israel? The Ark. Yeah. So this this is a little payback. Of course, the Ark finds its way back to Israel. God doesn't need help to get his his stuff back. But the uh, the, the Philistines make believe gods aren't much. So. Verse 22, after a while, Philistines returned and again spread out across the valley of Rephaim. Now, isn't this the way life works? Dang it! I've won the battle. It's over. I made the hard decision. I worked things out with my teenager. And I'm never going to have to do that again. Right? (laughs) And then there's a tomorrow. And then we do it again. I think God has the second-timer club. Every fool can do it one time. Everybody can be right, faithful, good one time. But it's the fools that go back for the second one, right? These are the people that God loves, and this is real life. You have to oftentimes make the right choice several times. Part of that, I think, is God teaching us. Part of that is we're we're tough, uh, tough to teach. So the Philistines, like I said, they've they've had a long history. They've lost a lot of battles. They've won quite a few. They're they're not going to be just easily defeated. So they come back. And once again, David asks the Lord what to do. Do not attack them straight on, the Lord replied. Instead, circle around behind them and attack them near the balsam trees. When you hear a sound like marching feet in the tops of the sound of, in the tops of the balsam trees, attack. That will be your signal that the Lord is moving ahead of you to strike down the Philistines. This is, this is a lot. <clears throat> Don't attack them foot on, but attack them from the side. Who does that sound like? Who's been doing that since he was 15? David. God is telling David, hey, you know that, that part of your personality where you are never really up front with everybody and you always flank them, you always turn the side and it helps you beat the Goliath. You didn't put the armor on and try to match him sword for sword, blow for blow. You did what you could do. You you approached him with a slingshot and killed him. 
That's what I actually put in you, David. I've been talking about that, but this is really where I got this, this idea. Uh, this is David's, in a sense, spiritual gift, or one of them anyway. He is he's a great tactical thinker. He knows how to match strength with weakness. And so God is telling him, be yourself. Do what I've made you to do. And again, it's it's brilliant. You can see uh, in, in a proto sense where the uh, Greeks would march up, um, the Philistines, you know, their heavy shields, heavy iron spears, you know, they're going to push their way up the valley. And if you can hit them from the side before they can turn and redeploy, then like a guerrilla tactic, you're going to have a huge advantage. You've got these, you know, valleys, and they're trying to move up the bottom of the valleys. They want to keep deployed on a flat plane as much as they can, even though they're having to go up this valley. So again, the terrain can greatly help you. Now David is at his best here. But unfortunately, David also uses this same tactic when, oh, I don't know, he's uh, playing that dating app called Meet Bathsheba, and he has to get rid of her husband, right? Um, there's, a, there's a way we can work around this, right? I don't need to tell him to get out of town. I can just set him into battle and get him killed. And hopefully that'll work. So God gives us gifts. Hugely important, I think that you know what your gifts are. And then really question yourself, how do I use what God has given me? I mean, in life, when do things just seem to, to get some tread, just, just really seem to get moving in your life? Now, we have to work for sure, but where's that place where you enjoy the work and it, it just seems to go well? When you're beginning, I think, to feel your spiritual gift. David didn't have to think a whole lot about killing Goliath. It just it got out there and he did it. Not that I'm going to give you a false sense that it's always easy, because it's not. He still had to cut Goliath's head off. David still had to do a lot of killing here in order to free his country. But he was in the place that God wanted him to be. Let me jump over real quick, just read it for you. This is 2 Samuel chapter 8. And this is really a greater confirmation of how successful David was that day. Chapter 8, verse 1. After this, <coughs> David subdued and humbled the Philistines by conquering Gath, their largest city. So how far has David come from the Philistines attacking Israel and threatening them? to David actually going and taking one of their five cities, the city of Goliath, the city where he had lived, and their largest city. And so they really are a beat and broken people after this last attempt to invade Israel. And let me just say, kind of the historian, if you were writing the story later on, which a lot of people accuse the Bible of doing, right, that it was written hundreds of years after it claimed to be written, you would never write the story of the Philistines. Because the Philistines, by the time they say the Bible was written, 
uh, we're broken people. It's like today saying, man, those Mongolians, they're a deadly, vicious bunch. When's the last time Mongolia did everything? It's been a while, right? Now, Serbia, in their day, they were bad, bad boys, but not anymore. The Philistines were the same way. In the beginning of the Iron Age, boy, they were a handful. They were a mess. And that's when Judges and David and everybody fought them. But later in history, they were just a broken people, primarily because of what David did. It just it proves the Bible knows what it's talking about when it's talking about them. So, questions? Well, I've got one for you. Okay. Did you have Do you have more to, to teach? Yeah, just just one last thing. But go ahead, go ahead. And then we'll well, we we'll go back to the, the map for a second. Um, the second battle is up north. We sort of alluded to it. Verse twenty-five. Uh, so David did what the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. So this is you've got Gibeon over here, and you've got Gezer over here. So this is the way that we place. Uh, the, the northern attack. So they can't get through this valley. They can't get through that ridge. So it looks like they're trying to go up north again. And again, David uses this, this tactic that he's ambushing them from the sides. And uh, he's able basically to push them completely out of the mountains back to the coast. And that's where they came from. Uh, he's bottling them up along the coast where they can't get out. We look at chapter 6, and this is a little bit after, but it, it probably gives us a feel of what David was able to mobilize once he had the whole country. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Then David mobilized how many troops? 30,000. Now, this is one of those things where, like, if you had 30,000 troops you could have called on, how in the world did the Philistines ever do, defeat you? I mean, again, the Philistines at max could probably deploy 10,000, probably less. Now, soldier for soldier, they're a lot more than an Israelite farmer. But Israel always had the numbers. What they lacked was leadership and the training, probably access to iron weapons. So David, as a leader, feeling that that, that key linchpin was able to, to really transform this country. And they're going to go, in his lifetime, from a backwards, sort of broken people, divided into tribes, into the new regional power. And it'll get even stronger in the time of Solomon. So the Philistines are gone. David is going to begin to exert influence around his neighbors, conquering them. It's it's all it's all falling into place. And I think the scripture is really tying it to two things: David inquiring of the Lord, and David being who God intended for him to be. It's it's a good day. It begins a golden age for David, no doubt, no doubt. And so just ponder this for a second. Who's winning these battles? Who said God? Yeah. God? Anybody else want to make another argument? I will. David. 
It's the partnership that wins the battle. Amen. Come on, y'all. Um, it's like so often we want God to do it. And you see what David is asking whenever he is inquiring of the Lord uh, in both of the in both of these things. Um, Shall I attack the Philistines? So he is willing to put skin in the game. Will you deliver them? This is what life and relationship with God is all about. It is about a partnership. Going all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve, this was God's vision for humans, is that we would be in partnership. And it is when we turn our back on our partner, God, that things tend to fall apart. And we've seen how they fall apart for David when he does not inquire of the Lord. With uh, chapter six, is called Kurt said chapter six through chapter uh, ten really becomes the golden age of David's uh, reign, and it really doesn't last very long <laughs> because he stops inquiring of the Lord. Now, in chapter, just kind of give you a lay of the land. In chapter seven, there is this uh, part of David that is sitting before the Lord, which that's a good thing, right? But for all practical purposes, the inquiring of the Lord, the the commitment to the partnership ends here. And so when we, it's like I know know you guys, and I know that y'all desire to do the will of God. And like when we read through this, it's almost like, man, David's asking these questions and God's giving the answers just like that. Well, the biblical writers aren't giving us kind of the amount of time it took David to discern the voice of the Lord. Um, don't be fooled into thinking that that's how God answers. God is never not doing anything, but God is normally not doing things as fast as we want him to do them. It's just, it's just the way it is. Um, and so, um, like, you have a plan for discerning the choices that are in front of you. You need a plan. And this this passage here, I think, gives us some some nuts and bolts of a plan. And when you have a choice in front of you. Um, commit to the partnership. That this is not just you. It's not always just uh, to you. I think that sometimes. About family, about here at the church, it's up to me. No, it's not. And so it's, it's about the partnership. And so that's what that inquiring of the Lord, it's a commitment to the partnership. Asking the Lord questions, just like David does here. What do you want my part to be? What is your part going to be? And waiting for the answer. Like the classic discernment language, and maybe I've shared this with you before. It's uh, the language of consolation and desolation. Especially that second part, as Kurt was alluding to, that must have felt really good for David to hear that. It's like, God, I can do that. Right? That is consolation. When you make a choice that feels like this is, and I would even encourage you, and it's it sometimes it feels like Jedi mind tricks, but when you're committed to 
the, the, the covenant and you're committed to the relationship, just know that that in and of itself pleases God very, very much. We may not hear God right every time. We may not make right choices every time, right, Pastor Kirk? We, we may miss here. But the fact of the matter is that we are committed to the partnership. That in and of itself pleases God. So always remember that. So when you're working through uh, your, your, your question, your choice that is before you, make it. And before you go and tell your boss or go close the deal or whatever it it may be, wait three days. Like, let it stew. As Jesus was in the grave three days, just let it stew. Does it continue to feel good throughout those three days? If so, I think you can trust that that is the voice of the Lord. On the other hand, if it feels desolate, if it feels doesn't feel so good, uh, that's could we we can probably be safe to say that that is God saying no. Let's not do this together. Let's do something different. Consolation, desolation, discernment. What if you just can't get to a place of peace? This may need to be involved in all arenas of our discernment. We're growing with each other in this room, and there needs to be other people in your life where you can go honestly say, I am wrestling with the Lord with this, and I would like your insight, and I would like your wisdom. Remember earlier in the story when David would go and actually spend time with the priest? What was his name? Abiathar. Abiathar. He's a priest, but he's God, right? That he helped David to discern God's will for his life. And when he would go to Abiathar, good things or bad things happened. Good things happened. Pastor Kurt has already said what we want and I'll speak for me what I want is I want to hear God's voice, make the right choice and for my life to be easy anybody with me? <laughs> that's what I want let's be honest with you. making the right choice does not mean that the road ahead is going to be easy but it will be good. And it will be told, right? It will bear fruit. That will bear fruit. That will bear fruit. Because, brothers and sisters, we take the time to pay attention to the partnership. It's always better to do something with God than without Him. And David is a prime example of that right here. You guys are wise. We studied this. Is David going to have a better time spiritually in his golden age than he did when he was hunted and persecuted? What do you think? No. When I get to do what I want, do I do what God wants? 
God is ultimately a parent who says to us, <clears throat> we can do this the hard way, we can do this the easy way. Whichever way gets through to you. So if you need a Saul hunting you down to keep you in a good place, then I'm going to send a Saul to hunt you down and keep you in a good place. If, on the other hand, I can bless you, I can give you your dreams, I can create with you, and you'll still continue to make good choices, then that's what we'll do. But David, like so many of us, um, when he's given freedom, he goes a little crazy with it. So think about that. What do you want? And then what's good for you? Do you need a little pressure in life? Does God have to have a soul there for you? Or can you grow beyond that? I don't know. I, I've got a lot of souls. I tend to find them. <laughs> I tend to be my own. But anyway, any other questions? Let's pray. Father our God, thank you again that you can show us literally a man after your own heart, but a man that is very much after our own heart. A man that is conflicted. A man that can do amazing things when he is in partnership with you. He can win battles that change the history of his people when he stands with you. And yet we know on the inside there is a war. War for his heart, war for his attention, war for his soul. And it's a war that rages in our own. Father, we know, you know, and that in us, we want to be who you made us to be. We want to be that strong leader that can unify our family, our work, our job, our country, to do what's right. Father, we get distracted, we make mistakes, and we get stuck in them. Help us to learn again that no matter how long an enemy has haunted us, if we go to you, be in true partnership with you, be who you've made us to be, you can fix it. Overnight, you can fix it. You simply want us to be involved. Help us to choose today to be a partner first and foremost with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grace and peace, guys. Have a great week.